Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Independence Day, July 4th, is the date commemorating the Declaration of Independence, but it's not quite as simple as all of that, as we'll learn. Our attention's been drawn to the Washington University Library System, which is currently home to a rare copy of that declaration. We're talking about what it is, what it means, and a few things about the historic event that may surprise you. Joining me from the Washington University's library system are Cassie Brand, curator of rare books. Nadia Gossady is associate university librarian for special collections. Also with us, David Koenig is professor of law and emeritus professor of history at Washington University. Thank you all so much for being with us. Great to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Cassie, let me start with you. Uh, How does it happen that Washington University has this particular document? A lot of our collections are really given to us by our wonderful donors, and the Declaration of Independence is one of those items. The Newman family had this declaration hanging in their house for a long time before they decided to give it to Washington University Libraries, and we're so happy that they entrusted us with this gift. Nadia, it is not the Declaration of Independence. We better describe what it is exactly. Right. Um, this is actually a broadside, and uh, basically what what purpose this served was to get the word out. And this was Rhode Island, a copy that went to Rhode Island, that was produced in Rhode Island, sorry. And so uh, this was um, to notify the the townspeople that we are declaring our dependence from Britain and going to war. And uh, it was really had a very ephemeral purpose to communicate the news. Uh, Cassie, what exactly is a broadside? A broadside is any document that is printed only on one side of the paper, and it was usually done that way in order to be hung in an important place where people would see it. Um, We can think about a poster. Nowadays, it was usually an announcement or a declaration. How many of these were produced, and and for, for what specific reason? There were 200 of the Dunlap copy produced, and that was the one that was printed overnight in Philadelphia and sent to the colonies and to King George. And then in Rhode Island, they reprinted 29 copies to be sent throughout the new state of Rhode Island. Nadia, how were these things preserved over a couple of centuries? I mean, it's just paper after all. Right, right. Um, Our copy is also laid paper. And really, it's um, about conditions such as humidity and temperature. And if things are kept in in, in those um, ideal environments, they can last a very, very long time, as we can see with our copy. Presumably, though, over 200 years plus, uh, it it was not kept under ideal conditions. Right. Um, As Cassie mentioned, our copy was actually hanging in the home of the Newman family and therefore exposed to light. But it's surprisingly still in really great condition. And we did... uh, did have some conservation treatments performed on it, and it looks really great as far as I'm concerned for being as old as it is. <laughs> Cassie, what are those treatments? We sent it to the NEDCC, which is the Northeast Document Conservation Center. They're the experts that we decided to go with for this. And um, they did some brushing with a dry brush very softly to remove some of the dirt. They took off um, a silk overlay that had been placed on it to originally stabilize the document. That was actually... Um, kind of blurring the image a little bit. Um, They filled in some of the holes that had happened over time and colored the paper so that it matches and the holes aren't there anymore. And they actually gave it a bath. They submerged it in a water alcohol solution, which kind of terrifies me a little bit (laughs) uh, because I don't wash my paper. 
um, but they're the experts, so they were able to do that. And you can actually see the differences between the digital display that we have and the physical copy. You can see the conservation treatment that was done, and it's actually a lot easier to read now. And Nadia, it's uh, carefully protected, obviously, while on display. Yes. Um, we have a custom-built chamber experience, so you kind of enter a small room that is kept very dark. Also, to protect the document, we have to monitor how much light it is exposed to over time, and it's in its own case that has its own temperature and humidity controls. Well, we'll get back to the document in a moment or two, but I want to bring David into the conversation. David, I get the impression that what we're really talking about here is the Twitter of 1776. That's exactly right. There was a, it was a way to prevent the, the problem that was caused by what I might call tsunami of Twitter that, uh, that occurred whenever any event seemed to happen or that people were afraid would happen. So the uh, idea that was that this would be a formal document signed by the secretary of the Rhode Island legislature to make sure that people knew this was not an alternative fact. This was a recitation of what was going on and that their elected representatives had presented and were inviting the public to be a part of. To get the debate going, was that it? Well, it was to uh, stake out a certain part of the debate. It was to stake out the part uh, of the debate that this was uh, a serious step, obviously. But if you uh, look at uh, Jefferson's language very closely, it's very calm, very reasoned, very lawyerly. In fact, he had just left and given up his law practice to go into politics. So he wrote this as a lawyer would write it, and it did not appeal to emotion. It did not try to inflame a popular frenzy. It wanted to convince. It wanted to enlist people and their rational faculties in support of the movement. What was the uh, the national mood at this particular time? How divided was uh, the, were the colonies? That's a very, very important uh, topic to, to confront because John Adams uh, later said that a th- only a third of the American people supported independence when it was declared, and another third opposed it, another third had no opinion or were indifferent to it. So this was necessary in a, in a democracy. I think that's one of the things we forget is that there were no democracies at the time. And this idea of starting a government based on the will of the people, the consent of the people actively engaged in politics was a radical and untried idea. In fact, it was a, in the terms and the conventions of political theory at the time, it was crazy that uh, every democracy degenerated into disorder, chaos, and ultimately tyranny. So the idea was to enlist the support and the commitment of people in what they were doing. And the uh, the documents, these broadsides, were sent to all of the colonies for people to begin this uh, this kind of discussion. I think one of the surprises that uh, that I mentioned in the introduction is that uh, it was signed. The declaration mm-hmm. was signed on the fourth of July, but it took mm-hmm. a long a long time <laughs> for uh, for the word to get out. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it wasn't signed on the fourth of July. It was uh, it was uh-huh. it was voted on the fourth of July. Okay, got it. That, and that's what I meant yeah. to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you no, but you're on the right track uh, because it wasn't. Uh, signed by all of those who had voted for it until August. And it wasn't until many days later that word got out. One of the local 
Philadelphia newspapers leaked uh, the, the text of the declaration. But actually, the certified copy by Congress wasn't uh, distributed until, as, uh, as, as, as Nadia and Cassie point out, for several days. I mean, it took four or five days to get from Philadelphia to Boston, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and longer to get to uh, some of the southern colonies. Longer to get to southern, southern colonies. And in fact, one of the other issues uh, that uh, the, the broadside was intended to, to engage was the fact that it took months to get it to Britain and then months to get it back. And in the meantime, people didn't know what was going on. Uh, so this was a way to calm people's fears uh, the, of, of something happening that they were not party to and to convince them as to what was happening. So, Cassie, there were no signatures, obviously, on the broadside, but there was a name. Yes, John Hancock's name appears on the original Dunlap broadside, and there were no signatures. Um, I believe the final date where the last signature was added to the official copy in the National Archives was August 2nd. Is that, yeah, that's correct. And um, the Southwick broadside, which is the broadside we have from Rhode Island, is actually the first of any broadside to carry a signature because Henry Ward from Rhode Island um, signed it. Mm-hmm. How did the Newman family, uh, Nadia, I'll ask you this, how did the Newman family acquire this? So um, Mr. Eric Newman was a collector, and it wa- he was approached by a dealer and wanting to know if he wanted to buy this. I, I believe it was around 1940 that, that this copy came uh, to be on sale, and he, he grabbed it and has just kept it in the family home for decades. Do we know what he paid for it? I believe he paid $750. Cassie, what's it worth today, do you think? <laughs> Much more than that. <laughs> so do you have any, any sense of what the value might be? Um, we, we do, but that's something we typically do not share openly. <laughs> <laughs> we and like to think about its historic value and not its monetary right, value. Right. Well, that just shows it's you how priceless. Cra- crass, how it's cra- priceless. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get it that way. How long are you going to have it for display? It is now on permanent display. There will be times where we need to let it rest, which means take it out of the light and just allow it to sit in the dark for a while. But the chamber was built specifically for the declaration so that we'll be able to display it long term. Well, tell me a little bit more about this chamber. Again, I don't mean to be terribly crass about it, but what does it cost to build something that will protect a document like this for a long period of time? We know? Yeah, so um, this was part of a, a larger transformation project at the university libraries, and the project itself was about $22 million. So this is, this is a wow. piece of that, um, but also the project includes other exhibition spaces, um, including the Thomas Gallery, which is a 63-foot-long exhibition case that we can also showcase many of our other special collections. We currently have Lasting Legacies, a exhibition on different alum from WashU and their collections. We also have um, the Newman Tower of Collections and Exploration, which includes more more um, exhibition cases, study spaces for students, and a lot of new learning and instruction rooms in a new exploration oh center. So it's um, we, we welcome anyone. We welcome the community to come out and see all these, these new spaces and engage with our exhibitions. And even tomorrow, Professor Koenig will be giving a talk on the Declaration at 1 p.m. in Olin Library that all are welcome to attend. We will, and that's at 1 o'clock tomorrow. Correct. And we'll have uh, that information on our website. Uh, David, um, how can this particular document be used as a teaching moment uh, over at the university? Well, it's, it's context. Uh, whenever we teach history, we have to teach context. Uh, first of all, that this document didn't spring 
uh, from the brow of, uh, of Thomas Jefferson, the way Athena is said to have sprung from the, va- the brow of Zeus. Um, this is a, uh, number one is that uh, this was a collaborative effort. Uh, the men who worked on this document, when they finished, were exhausted exhausted because of the time that went into it and the need to engage alternative uh, or, let's say, competing visions of what this country would be. I mean, this is a national, uh, a statement of national identity. And the fact that it is designed to mobilize and to engage a rational public informed by the facts of a situation is something that we should pay attention to today. I certainly want to get into the way the Brits reacted to all of this, and we'll do that in a moment, but I do have to take a break, and I will also invite members of our listening audience to get into the conversation if you have questions about this document, uh, the Declaration of Independence, the history behind it, if you will. Give us a call at 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org, or if you'd prefer to send a tweet, do so at STL on air. We welcome your questions. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio. 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. Welcome back as we continue our conversation on the Washington University special display of the Declaration of Independence. David, let me come back to you and get that reaction. Uh, this had to be sent to uh, to Britain for its consideration, I suppose, and evaluation. What happened? Well, actually, aside from the war, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the uh, Parliament and the King expected something like this. Uh, they had rejected um, all efforts at reconciliation. In fact, uh, almost exactly a year to the day from Declaration of Independence in July of 76. In 75, Congress had sent what's called an olive branch petition seeking reconciliation, mm. which the king refused to accept and in response announced <clears throat> that the colonies were in open and avowed rebellion, which basically means that they are no longer protected mm-hmm. by British law. So the train of events or the long train of events that Jefferson refers to in the Declaration had already begun, and it was an unstoppable process in Parliament by this time, which really wanted to to, uh, clamp down. What exactly was sent to Britain? Was it uh, a broadsheet? It was was, um, was probably not the broadsheet. I'm not sure, but it was certainly the text as approved by Congress uh, on July 4th, 1776. Uh, In fact, uh, it was sent around the world. Uh, It was sent to other countries. It was translated into other languages. Mm -hmm. The idea is that this was something for the world to see what was going on, to gain the support of the world for a risky and threatening um, kind of gesture. I mean, think of the the other crowned heads of Europe Mm -hmm. seeing what was happening here with uh, a crowned head being repudiated by his own people. So this was, uh, this was something that was, was designed to justify what was done, and it did rouse quite a bit of support in Parliament uh, for America. But unfortunately, they were a minority and they were overwhelmed. There's a piece of local trivia associated with this. So just before I left office, I talked to Governor Nixon about mm-hmm. his great, 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 great uncle, 
who read the Declaration. He was a sheriff in Philadelphia, and he read the Declaration of Independence to the public a, a day or two mm-hmm. after the uh, the Fourth. Uh, well, there are a lot of connections between St. Louis or Missouri and uh, the Declaration. I mean, the fact that Jefferson was so instrumental in securing the Louisiana Purchase, the idea or that he would know that a copy of his handiwork would now be rep- in a repository uh-huh. west of the Mississippi River where his ideals were, were to be implemented uh, would be quite pleasing. Cassie, that, does that come to your mind as well, that there is that significance? It does. And we also have the world's uh, third largest collection of Thomas Jefferson books. So uh-huh. it's really great. We have a small display of his books next to the Declaration right now. So we can see his books with his work. Yeah. Uh, that, that, we want to talk more about the library system over at WashU because it's more extensive than even I thought. And I've been around for a <laughs> long time. But Nadia, Nadia, I'll come to you. We have a listener who wants to know if it's an exact copy of the Declaration of Independence that's in Washington down to the lettering and punctuation. And I know <laughs> that the lettering is something that has been discussed by, by all of you uh, over the weeks. Um, and Professor Koenig can certainly speak to this as well. Um, it's not the exact final wording because at, at the time in which this broadside was produced, um, the decision had not been um, made unanimous by all of the colonies. At, at this point, New York had not signed on. So it's lacking that word unanimous, which is a really, really neat uh, feature of this mm-hmm. copy. And I don't know. Well, some of the, some of the, the min- there were some minor tweaks uh, afterwards, but they're really insignificant. What is important, as Nadia <laughs> says, is the word unanimous. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the other things uh, that you, you're perhaps alluding to uh, are the early drafts of this. Uh, I mean, some people who were in Philadelphia objected to what had been left out of the final version. And in fact, uh, again, it's a, it's a fact of democracy. You have to compromise. And one of the the compromises that uh, Jefferson was most bitterly disappointed in is that uh, southern slave states uh, insisted that any condemnation of slavery be removed from the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, the, that word does not, uh, is not included uh, in that or the Constitution. Neither either, one. Think. Neither one. Right. The, uh, the uh, punctuation is something, Cassie, that uh, I've seen alluded to as well. It was not punctuation exactly. It's the way some some letters of the alphabet were presented. S in particular is one that we would not recognize today. Back in this time period, you still had different spelling conventions, including the long S. And it looks to us like an F, um, but it was actually called a long S. And there are different ways to use it. When you have two S's together, the first one would be long and the second one would be the short S, which is the mm-hmm. S that we're used to seeing. And so for some, it can be a little difficult to read the original declaration because of these different spelling conventions that you have to get used to. The uh, My understanding also is the digital version of Nadia um, uh, has an interactive component. What What is that all about? Yeah, so inside the chamber, you can further explore the declaration uh, through a touch screen because we realize while it sits in the case, you can only get so close to it and you also can't look at the, the back of it. So you're able to flip it over. Um, it does say on the on the back of it, it says, you know, town clerk Warwick because this was going to be handed off to the town clerk in Warwick, mm-hmm. Rhode Island. Um, and you can, there's some hot spots on the text. So if you're interested in learning more,
more about those particular areas. You can touch those and more information will appear. And we also have some frequently asked questions. Um, often one thing people are going to, you know, they walk in and want to see, you know, where's Thomas Jefferson's signature? Where, where are all the, um, all the names and kind of explaining more? It's because this had a, this is a broadside that had a very specific purpose that was generated in Rhode Island to share this news. It isn't the more ceremonial copy that it's at the National Archives. Cassie, do we know how long this was uh, in these uh, sheets were in circulation in the various uh, colonies? I don't know the answer to no. that. I would say very, very briefly. I mean, these were ephemera. These were like mm-hmm. yesterday's newspaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, it was published in many of the local newspapers, mm-hmm. so it did appear again. But these documents uh, vanished as uh, as quickly as you might uh, might be afraid of. What do we know about the, uh, the the kinds of conversations that they probably generated? We know that there was mm-hmm. not not unanimity with regard mm-hmm. to people wanting to break away from Britain. But do we have any sense that this generated uh, further debate, more intense debate, perhaps? Well, a lot of the states had already declared their independence, so this became a national issue. And in fact, it's the first time we see the phrase "United States of America." Mm-hmm because this is the first time that they took collective legal action on the world stage. So it did generate that sense that we are now a nation, and uh, we we should be aware of the fact that that's what they were committing themselves to. These weren't just now 13 separate countries that were uh, breaking free. Can you give me some sense of the timeline once uh, from July 4th, uh, 1776, mm-hmm. until the the war started, for instance, given, given all of the reaction mm-hmm. from Britain and elsewhere. Well, the war had already started. Yeah. Again, Lexington and Concord had been, uh, you know, earlier right. in 1775. Uh, the British fleet uh, had bombarded <laughs> and destroyed this, the town of Portland, Maine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the war had started. Much of this was a fait accompli. Mm-hmm. And it was necessary to explain what was going on and to, I think the right word might be channel, to channel American energies and thought in a particular direction and to make sure this was a unified and cohesive document. I, we have a, uh, a question here. Was the importance of the document recognized at the time, or was it simply viewed as news of the day as a ne- newspaper would be? Well, that's that's a very perceptive comment because it – it basically, as a, as being read, it vanished overnight. I mean, not overnight, but certainly it was not read publicly mm-hmm. year in and year out the way it is on NPR now uh, yeah. every July 4th. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it became a political football because Thomas Jefferson wrote it, and he was the leader of a political party that the, another political party, the Federalists, who were in power at the time, Washington, Adams were Federalists, did not want to give credit to the founder of an opposition party. Mm -hmm. So it has a rather um, controverted uh, subsequent history, not because of its content, because who its writer was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had mentioned at the outset that there were were a lot of surprises, I think. Mm -hmm. We tend to think that Mm -hmm. uh, July 4th, everybody Mm -hmm. just put their arm, arm, did a fist pump, and uh, Mm -hmm. that was that. uh, But there were so many other things that happened along the way that kind of uh, shook the system and shook the uh, the history. Well, there were. There were. I mean, to go back to the issue of the war having started, I mean, this was, this was read to the troops under Washington's command. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to remember we had an all-volunteer army then. Uh, this was a democracy. We had to encourage citizens to take part 
in the war, whereas George III simply hired a bunch of German mercenaries mm-hmm. or sent over uh, uh, British conscripts who had, who had really no interest in suppressing the American rebellion. Mm-hmm. In fact, many of whom deserted and joined the American cause or married American women and went off and helped found a country. Mm-hmm. Nadia, let me turn back to you with regard to uh, the acquisition process, not, not of this document per se, but you've got a lot of, a lot of things over there in those libraries. Uh, what's the process like to acquire them? So a lot of our collections are donated, as Cassie mentioned, and we also do purchase some collections um, uh, if, if, if funds are available to do so. So we have almost, uh, I would say, nearly a 1,000 collections in our special collections, and some of our really strong areas of strength, um, aside from rare books, are modern literature and manuscripts. We have a very um, strong presence in our civil rights history, particularly the Henry Hampton collection. He was a St. Louis native and a Washington University alum, and he created Eyes on the Prize, the definitive work on the civil rights Mm -hmm. movement. And we also are really um, becoming kind of the institution as far as periodical illustration, particularly in the 20th century with our our D.B. Dowd monographic history library. Cassie, do you go out looking for things, or do they basically just come to you? It's a little bit of both. Um, The university library sent me to the New York Book Fair in order to meet with dealers and look at what's available on the market. But I also have book artists and dealers who show up to Washington University libraries and um, bring kind of a suitcase full of books to lay out in front of me, uh, which is really amazing and wonderful. Do the academics get involved in that process at all? I mean, you, you would have some interest in what's in those libraries. Well, when we find out about it, we certainly would, would put in a good word for it. But we, we have a, a very intense interest in the building of this collection, of the, of the rare book uh, special collections. I mean, these are not holy artifacts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Declaration is not simply something <clears throat> to be uh, enshrined as a holy of holies uh, for people to genuflect in front of. They're documents. And one of the great things about the, the Jefferson collection that they have now is that well, people say, well, who cares that he owned this book? Uh, so, well, number one, we have a volume that was probably the last book he read you know, before he died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but uh, also uh, we have um, uh, the way of uh, looking at his other books where he wrote in the margins. I mean, oh. <laughs> we don't like the idea of writing in margins, and I'm sure that gives, uh, gives our staff uh, the creeps to think of that our students are writing in the margins of the books. But uh, Jefferson owned these books. And he wrote in them. And to see how he responded to his own works is something of great revealing power. I was, Cassie, I was going to say, yes, revealing, just determining what he was reading. The variety of uh, material that he would read would tell us an awful lot about the man. Oh, absolutely. Jefferson was a great book collector, um, as we can see from the library that he sold to the Library of Congress, which really founded um, the Library of Congress's desire to collect in all areas. But um, looking at his books, we can trace ideas from the Declaration of Independence to where he got them from in his collection. What, what is the most prized possession in the libraries? It's staff, I'm sure. That's <laughs> <laughs> I like that answer. Yes. yes. But there must be something that is, of which you're particularly proud I think it would be the Declaration of Independence. Really? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such an amazing document, and it's, a, it's been wonderful for me to see people's reactions to it. The university libraries held a series of open, open houses for incoming students, and there was one student who walked out of the case wide-eyed, open-mouthed, and just could not speak. Mm-hmm. It was really amazing to see her reaction, and, and when she was finally able to speak again, she was like, my university has a Declaration of Independence. <laughs> that was just so important mm-hmm. for her 
you know, and she's thinking about becoming a history major. And so to see students be able to connect with this historic document in that kind of way is amazing. When, when can people view it? The exhibit is open Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, and Saturdays and Sundays from 11 to 5. We will be closed on July 4th, but we're having our event tomorrow. Wait, and I wait a minute. That's, that's almost sacrilegious. <laughs> closed on July 4th. Well, it's a, it's, it's a fascinating story. The whole story is, needless to say, most fascinating. I want to thank you all thank for being you. with us and telling us about this and uh, a great way to talk about the, uh, about the 4th of July. Thanks to Cassie Brand, Nadia Gossidi, and David Koenig of Washington University. A reminder, a celebration of the Declaration of Independence will be observed at 1 o'clock tomorrow in the John M. Olin Library at Washington University. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.